We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, and for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of an, an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now this is what we're going to be spending the next two weeks in, maybe more, but at least two weeks in these verses. Now, as you already see, it, there's quite a bit here. But Daniel says that while he was praying, confessing his sins and the sins of his people Israel and making his plea for not only the people of Israel, but the holy city Jerusalem and the holy hill where the temple was. He said that it says here, it says, while I was speaking in verse 21 in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Gabriel is the angel that comes to give him this message. By the way, if you know anything about the Bible, Gabriel's one of the important ones. He's one of the big boys when it comes to the angels and high, high ranking and very important. But it was 10 years earlier, most likely, what he's referring to here about the earlier vision. So jump over to Daniel chapter 8 real quick and look at verses 15 and 16. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 15, it says, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. And so then, of course, Gabriel comes and explains it to him. So he's referring most likely when he says the angel, the one I saw at their earlier vision, at the first. That's 10 years earlier and what we have now as Daniel chapter 8. Well, what I want to point out to you is not only does Gabriel come to him again with this message while he's praying. Notice how quickly Gabriel was sent. Look closely again at verses 20 and 21 and verse 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Jump down to verse 23. Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. Now, when did God answer his prayer? Bef as soon as he finished? 
No. At the beginning, when he began to pray, by the way, well, didn't God have to kind of wait and find out what he was going to ask? No, he already knows. Jesus said he already knows what we need before we even ask. The father already knew what he was going to be praying. But while he was praying, the angel Gabriel was sent immediately. Now, we're not going to break it down because we're going to get to chapter 10 in a few weeks. But in chapter 10, we're going to see another angel, not Gabriel, but a different angel, delayed 21 days in bringing an answer to Daniel. So I want you to understand that even though here it seems that God responds immediately to the prayer, have you ever noticed sometimes you pray and it doesn't feel like God's responding? Well, we're going to break it down as to one of the many reasons why when we get to chapter 10. But in chapter 10, there's an angel was sent right away there in that instance as well. But he was delayed 21 days in a spiritual battle that was going on in the heavenly realms. We'll get to that later. What I want to do is I want to just show you from Scripture real quick that you need to pray with an understanding that God already knows what you're going to ask before you ask. And he's already ready to answer. But if it appears that he's taking a long time, what you have to do is understand his heart. If you really understand the heart of God towards you when you pray, you'll be able to pray and not have God on a timetable. Because he desires for you to have your response, but he also desires what's best for you. And sometimes what's best for us isn't right now. Actually, Jesus himself said that in John 16, verse 12. He said, I have more to say to you, more than you can now bear. I've used this illustration for years, but if you ever raise little girls, uh, if they're four and they ask you where babies come from, are you going to give them the full explanation? Of course not. They wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't be able to handle it. It wouldn't do them any good. They'd probably run from every boy they ever saw. But listen, listen to what I want you to hear. You tell them what they need to know when they need to know it because you know what's best for them. But just because God may appear to be delayed in responding to your prayer doesn't mean God is delayed in responding to your prayer. His heart is for you and actually he's responding at the right time in the right way if we believe it. L let me show you what I mean. Go to Luke chapter 18. Let's take a look at what the scripture has to say about the heart of God when it comes to our prayers. In Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she won't beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice. He'll give justice to them. Well, how? Quickly, speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Understand what Jesus is saying here. He told him this story. He made this parable up to teach him that they should pray and never, not only give up, but don't lose heart. He said there was this judge who finally responded to this widow because she wore him down. And he's using this guy as an antithesis of who God is. God's not someone you have to badger. But if this guy's going to say yes because she, he was badgered, how much more do you think your Heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you and wants to respond is going to respond. Pray and believe and know the heart and he will give answer quickly. Now, there's so much more to this than we have time to get into. 
So many levels when it comes to our understanding. And God actually sometimes might have responded and you didn't catch it. There are times that we just don't believe him when he speaks. So there are a whole lot of other things. There's a spiritual realm going on, which we'll get to in chapter 10. But folks, what I want you to come out of tonight is this. When we pray, God responds immediately. Why? Because he already knows before we need before we even ask. But also, just because he responds immediately doesn't mean we're going to get the answer right away. And there could be spiritual reasons. There could be human reasons. There could be lots of reasons. But don't lose heart. Know the heart of the Father for you. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 5 through 8. See, it's one thing to be able to quote this. But do you really believe it? Look what it says in James chapter 1 verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives what? Generously, freely, to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. Didn't Jesus say, ask and you will find, ask, you know, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open? We're going to get to that verse in just a second, but look closely. It says, I underlined it in my Bible here, I underlined it, it will. It will be given to him. But let this person ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. He'll give it to you. He wants you to know. He desires. If he's withholding, it's for your best. But he will respond. And many of you have been believers long enough to know. You've heard every preacher say that sometimes his answer is yes, sometimes his answer is no, and sometimes his answer is what? Wait. Exactly. But he does respond. He does answer. And you need to know this and believe he will show me. So if you're praying about something and it appears that God hasn't responded, don't fall into the trap of enemy whispering in your eye and say, well, it's because this problem with you or that. No, his heart is for you. His heart is for you. Go to Luke 11. It can't get any more clear than this. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. In Luke 11, verses 9 through 13, he says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, what father among you, if he has a son, if the son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Folks, Daniel was praying, and he was told over and over, while you were still praying, at the beginning of your prayer, Gabriel comes and says, I was sent immediately. I was sent immediately. Now, before we get to unpacking what Gabriel tells Daniel, I want to point out something in verse 23 that Gabriel tells Daniel because it's, it's valuable for us. In verse 23 of Daniel 9, look at what he says. He says, the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Don't miss that. Gabriel comes and tells Daniel, the reason I was sent by God the Father is because you are greatly loved. Now, some of you are going to say, well, hang on for a second. Um, see, there, that's the problem. 
I can see Daniel being greatly loved. I can even see you, Jim, you're a preacher. I can see you being greatly loved. But God wouldn't greatly love me. Well, before I deal with that foolishness, let me show you that Daniel's told this a couple other times. Go over to chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. Go to Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. He says, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This is another whole different episode. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright now, for I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Look over at verses 18 and 19. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Now, like I touched on, there might be some of you and some of you that are watching right now online who think, well, God doesn't love me like he would love Daniel. Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, he might love you even more. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 16. Go to John chapter 16, verses 25. 27. Listen to what Jesus says here. In John chapter 16, verse 25, he says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now in that day, you'll ask in my name. And I don't say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Did you hear what Jesus said? By the way, in that day is the day when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. In that day, once I've done the die, living, finishing living this sinless life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you like the Father promised, but He can't come until I go away. But when I go away, He'll come. And when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, at that moment, we are in Christ. He is in us. And we ask anything we ask. It's in the name of Jesus because of our association with Him. And He says, don't miss this. He says, if you're going to ask me for something, don't think I'm going to have to talk to God on your behalf. He loves you already because you believed in me. Folks, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are greatly loved. Remember, I think we said it earlier in our study. Um, God's word is true. God's word is sure. And what God has said will happen will happen no matter how much, how strongly you feel differently. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Go to 1 John 4. The disciple Jesus loved. I love that, Nicole. That's excellent. John, all through his gospel, kept describing himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's pretty cool. 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 10 through 19. It says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, listen closely to this next verse. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you see the difference? It's one thing to know about the love that God has for you. It's another thing to believe it. It's one thing for me to tell you God loves you, and you'll say, okay, I can get the right answer. If someone means a written test, does God love me? Yes. 
but do you believe it? Do you pray like you believe it? God is love, and whoever abides in him abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for that type of fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears in that way has not been perfected in love. Folks, let me just say this to you. Daniel wasn't the only one greatly loved because of Jesus. The wall of separation between us and God has been removed, totally blown away. You are greatly loved. And the sooner you believe it, the happier you'll be. The more joy you'll have in this life, even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of sickness. I just finished preaching up in New Hampshire for a week, and I did a series on Psalm 23. We broke down over three nights Psalm 23, because most of us can quote Psalm 23, but I found very few people in the church today that can believe it. I mean, how many of you honestly believe the Lord is my shepherd? I'll have no lack. That's what he says. I shall not want. Doesn't say I won't have any needs, but they'll always be met and I'll never have a lack. And then he goes on about all the things that God has us do. Lies us down in green pastures, leads us by still waters, restores our soul, leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear any evil because he's with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us and he prepares a table before us in the midst of our enemies. Oh, listen to this last part. My cup runneth over. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord. I mean, do you need anything else? Actually, if you go look at the Hebrew, that word translated surely could also be translated only. Say it again now and take surely out and put only in. Only goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. By the way, you do realize that's true, right? If you're in Christ Jesus, all of his wrath has been removed. So the only thing that comes to you from the hand of God now is his mercy and God. And his goodness. Even if it's painful, it's good. When these truths move from knowing them to believing them, you're actually going to be someone that goes out in the midst of this crazy world that's freaking out, and you're going to look at them and say, I'm going to be all right. Yeah, but what about this? What about the government? What about vaccines? What about masks? What about all this stuff that's happening? What about fires? What about earthquakes? What about all this stuff? I think the Bible says that I'm going to be all right. Even if I die. So God's in control and he's already taken care of the only thing that I really had to fear, which was death. And that's now gone. And I'm going to be all right. Yes. Exactly. I like that. Even the valley of the shadow of death, you can't have a shadow without light. I like it. I didn't add that to my study. I have to go back to New Hampshire and finish <laughs> preaching now. So. All right. Let's go back to Daniel 9, 24 through 27. In, like I said in my introduction before our prayer time, in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we have the key to unlocking most, if not all, of New Testament prophecy. You see, Daniel's been praying, as we looked at in our last times together, Daniel's been praying about Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon, and Gabriel tells him that 77s, or weeks, have been declared, or another word for that is decreed. They have been decreed by God for Israel and Jerusalem. Look closely at verse 24 again. He says, 70 weeks or sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city. Don't miss this. As you're going to see from the rest of our study tonight and all the passages we're going to take a look at, 
This section is going to make a whole lot more sense to you if you understand that Daniel was praying about the 70-year captivity of Israel in Babylon, and Gabriel comes and says, I got another 70-year prophecy, or a 70 prophecy for you, and uh, it refers to Israel and the city of Jerusalem. By the way, for too long, the churches tried to read themselves into this. As you're going to see, and I'm going to lay it out for you tonight in great detail from Scripture and Old Testament prophecies, this prophecy concerns who? Israel and the city of Jerusalem. That's important. All right? So, as, you, as Daniel prayed for his people Israel and for the holy hill in Jerusalem, Gabriel was sent with a decree that just as 70 years were decreed for their captivity, so too were 70 sevens, all right, decreed for them as a nation. Now, Jerusalem will also be the center of where much of what will happen in the future will take place. Now, the Hebrew word translated sevens or weeks in the ESV here uh, is like our word dozen. If I say I have a dozen, what do I have? Twelve of what? You don't know. The word dozen means that there's twelve of something. The context will tell you what I have twelve of, correct? All right, so seventy-sevens means... 490 of something has been decreed. Context of this passage and history are going to show us, and prophecy is going to show us, that the word sevens or weeks is referring to a period of seven years. Therefore, 77-year periods equals what? 490 years. So Gabriel says, I want you to understand, you're praying about seven years of captivity, 77-year periods have been decreed for your city and for your people. Now, also, Daniel uses this word again in the next chapter, but quickly points out that this word seven refers to days. There, go to Daniel chapter 10 and look at verses 2 through 4. It says in Daniel 10, verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. By the way, that's the word sevens, weeks there, in verse, verse 2. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes. So here, that word is there used again. But he quickly points out that the sevens refers to days in this one. Now, he doesn't clarify for us what the seven refers to, or the sevens refers to in Daniel 9, but like you're about to see, context History and Old, New Testament prophecy, Old and New Testament prophecy, are going to show us that very clearly sevens or weeks are seven-year periods. Now, comparing our interpretation of sevens being a seven-year period to other New Testament prophecies, we're going to see that years works out with the math. And so Daniel 9.27, let's, let's begin to break it down a little bit here. In Daniel 9.27, and he, we're going to get to next week who the he is, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, or one seven-year period, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So if we're going we're gonna to make an assumption here that sevens, or weeks, is a seven-year period. Seventy sevens is 490 years. Now, if that is the case, and we're going to assume that, and we're going to test it now against the Scriptures, if this... One that's going to come and make a, a covenant, confirm a covenant with the many for one week, one seven-year period. At the halfway point, he's going to step into the wing of the temple. What would the math be then halfway of seven years? Three and a half years. All right, keep that in mind. Go to Matthew 24. 
Like I told you, Daniel 9, 20 through 27 is a key to unlocking most, if not all, of New Testament prophecy. Matthew 24, look at verses 15 through 22. Jesus refers to what we just read in verse 27. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, so here we see Jesus refer to Daniel 9.27. Daniel 9.27 tells us that this individual is going to make a covenant with many for a seven-year period. At the halfway point, three and a half years, he's going to break the covenant, step into the wing of the temple, declare himself to be God, as we've seen earlier in our study, and make the abomination of desolation. Jesus says, when you see this happen, run for your life. Now, go to Revelation chapter 12. He's telling the Jews this, by the way. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Look at verses 13 and 14. Revelation 12, verses 13 and 14. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So here we see a prophecy about the fact that during the tribulation period, Satan's going to be cast out of heaven finally, down to the earth. He knows that his time is short, and he's going to go after Israel. All right? Now, when he does this, God's going to protect Israel, the ones that run, like Jesus said to, get out of Judea, get out of there, run for your life, don't even go back for a coat. And they're going to be protected for a time. Times, right? Time is one year. Times is two more years. That's three years. And Half a time. That matches up exactly with Daniel 9, 27. The math works. Go to Revelation 12. Look at verse 6. Revelation 12, verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. By the way, if you know anything about Jewish prophecy and Jewish timekeeping, their years consisted of 360 days, not 365 like we have. 360 days. So anybody want to take a wild guess? And do the math, if there are any math people out here, you take three, uh, 1,260 days with 360 day years, guess how much that adds up to? Exactly three and a half years. Just like the prophecy said, the math works. Go to Revelation chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 3. Revelation 11, verse 1 through 3. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We already know how long 1,260 days is. That's three and a half years. Does anyone want to take a wild guess on how, many, how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. Do the math. It's three and a half years. Listen closely, folks. God is making it very, very clear. Seven-year period. Halfway point. The, the Antichrist is going to step into the wing of the temple. Israel, run for your life. You'll be protected if you do. 
Run to the wilderness. God will protect you there. And he says it through 42 months, times, time, and half a times, 1,260 days. I think it's pretty clear the math works. A seven is a seven-year period. Now, before uh, I want we go any further, I want you to see uh, the Old Testament math works, too. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, look at verses 23 through 25. And Daniel 7, verse 23. And thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Now, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. There it is again. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 7. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. By the way, is anybody here still a little bit foggy? Don't be upset. Look at the next verse. I heard, but I didn't understand. So if Daniel's still wrestling with it and he's seen the visions, don't get too freaked out. But let me just say to you, when Daniel says, I was praying and Gabriel came and said, I want you to understand the vision. God wants you to understand 77s are decreed for your people in your holy city from the context, from the prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm about to show you not tonight as much. It'll be next week. I'm going to show you from history the specific breaking down of this prophecy not only proves the seven-year interpretation for a sevens, it actually was literally fulfilled. All of it except one seven-year period was literally fulfilled to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. We're going to do the math. I'm going to lay it all out for you. It's going to be a fun study next week. It was literally fulfilled to the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Oh, if you remember, the prophecy said he would then be cut off and have nothing. And then there's, as you're going to see next week, there's a break in the prophecy. And that last seven-year period is the only part that hasn't been fulfilled. But before we get into all that, that's next week. Before we get into all that, I really want to show you the six things that God has said would be accomplished during these 490 years for Israel and Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight, we're only going to get through three of them. Okay. We're only going to get through three tonight because of time. But before we can even get into the specifics of the prophecy and how the math all works out, we have to not skip over some things here. Because i got to be honest with you, until I really started to study this and break it down, I didn't even fully grasp it. Because for years, I too tried to read the church into these next verses. When we see that they're specifically referring to Israel, and then you go back and double check it against the Old Testament prophecies, you're going to hopefully, like I did, have a light go off and you'll go, wow, 
That makes a ton of sense, all right? So look again at verse 24. He says, 77s or weeks, 77-year periods, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. That's as far as we're going to get tonight. We won't even get through all of this. But 77-year periods, 490 years, are decreed about who? Israel and Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, that's one. To put an end to sin, that's two. To atone for iniquity, that's three. To bring in everlasting righteousness, that's four. To seal both vision and profit, that's five. And to anoint a most holy place. All right? So, that's six. We're going to be breaking those down, three of them tonight, three next week, and then we'll get into the specifics of the math. So let's take a look at to finish the transgression. Circle that word the. That's important. That word, they're not saying finish transgression. It's to finish the transgression. And again, as we break this down, remember, these are decreed for Israel. The end of this 490-year time period will bring an end to the transgression of disobedient Israel, the nation. By the way, does anybody want to take a guess on what their transgression is? I'm sorry? The rejection of the Messiah. That's the transgression. Oh, as you're going to see, they're going to still deal with making an end to sin. There's still sins that we're going to talk about in the next section. But for right now, Jesus said, or he says it through Gabriel, that 490 years are decreed to, for the nation of Israel and city of Jerusalem to finish the transgression. Now, the nation of Israel rejected God many times in their history. And as you're going to see they, when we get to it next week, they rejected their Messiah when he came to them. But at the end of the 490 years, they will end their transgression and receive their Messiah and be saved. That's what's going to happen at the end of the seven-year period or the 490-year period with the one last seven-year period left, the tribulation period. The nation of Israel will no longer continue this transgression of rejecting Jesus. They will turn to Jesus and be saved. Go to Acts chapter 3. You're going to see something in Paul's sermon that all of a sudden you're going to go, ah, I never saw that. You know why? Because I didn't see it. And if I didn't see it, you didn't see it. So... <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you laughed at that. Please don't think I really think I'm that much smarter than you all. Probably half of the room, if not more, of you already saw this. But look at Acts 3 and what, what Peter says here in verses 19 through 21. Speaking to the nation of Israel in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Look closely at how he words this, though. He says, look at this. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ. Listen, What's holding him sending the Christ? Israel's repentance. Do you see how it's worded here? You need to repent, Israel, and turn back. 
He says in the verses just prior to that, verse 17 and 18, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In other words, Peter says, under the power of the Holy Spirit, look, when you guys repent, Jesus can come. When the nation repents, Jesus can come back to the earth and set up his kingdom. Go to Matthew 23. Look at verses 37 through 39. Jesus gave us a glimpse of this, and we might have missed it. In Matthew 23, look at verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37, Jesus at the end of his riding into Jerusalem, that day that we're going to look at next week, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now see, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you catch what Jesus said? Oh, by the way, this isn't talking about his triumphal entry. That had already happened. After the triumphal entry, when they were saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, and they didn't mean it. After that, Jesus says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Folks, the church is going to be raptured prior to that seven-year period. We've laid that out and we'll continue laying that out. But let me say this to you. Do you know what's keeping Jesus from coming back and setting up his kingdom on the earth? National Israel saying Jesus is the Messiah. Do you know what you need to pray for? You need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh, not that some wonderful man will come in and come up with a peace treaty. There's going to be a guy that everybody's going to think is the, the savior of the world, and he's going to confirm a covenant with everybody for a seven-year period, and, and Israel's going to be living at peace, and they're going to have unwalled villages when all this stuff happens. But no, the only peace for Jerusalem is when Jesus himself comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth. But listen, do you see what's happening here? Jesus' return to the earth won't happen until Israel turns to Jesus. Be praying for that. Be praying for that. Go to Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 25 through 27. Again, remember what Peter said in Acts 3. Repent, Israel, so that he can send the Christ. Romans 11, 25 through 27. Paul, speaking to Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then in this way, all Israel, by the way, that survives the tribulation period, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Folks, the Bible's real clear that what's keeping Jesus from coming back and setting up his kingdom is Israel having the transgression of rejecting the Messiah come to an end. Oh, by the way, the Bible prophecies, we don't have time to get into them. We've got to finish where we're going to go tonight so we can get buried for next week. But the Bible prophecies clearly show that the Jews that run into the wilderness, who listen to what Jesus said, the ones who don't, by the way, two-thirds of them are going to be killed. The ones who do and listen to Jesus and run, they're going to be protected for three and a half years. And as we're going to see in a little bit, they're actually going to cry out to him during that time in hiding and God's protecting them supernaturally, they're going to be all of a sudden realize what they've done. And they're going to be calling out. There are some prophecy people, I kind of lean in this direction myself, who actually believe that the scriptures hint 
at the fact that the Jews who are hiding in the wilderness will be for three days nonstop quoting Isaiah 53. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was laid upon him. And they're going to be realizing Jesus was the Messiah, and they're going to turn to him during that time, and Jesus is going to come back, meet them there, lead them out of that area, and defeat his enemies in the Battle of Armageddon. So the first thing that's going to happen of the six, or the first one of the six that we're looking at that's going to happen at the end of the 490 years for Israel and Jerusalem is that the transgression of rejecting the Messiah will come to an end for Israel. Now, there's a second thing, though. It says to make, the, to make an end of sin. Again, not only will Israel no longer reject their Messiah, but of many prophecies, I'm just going to give you a few, many prophecies show that sinning or missing the mark, that's what the word sin means here, will cease in Israel. It's an interesting thing. There's still going to be sin during the millennial kingdom because there's going to be many nations that are be allowed in and all this stuff. And the Bible talks about how the one who only lives to be 100 years is going to be considered accursed and, and, and stuff. But there's God's still going to, Jesus is going to rule on the earth with a rod of iron. So there's going to be still some sin, but the Bible says it'll be very, 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 very little. But there are prophecies that kind of hint to the fact that actually sinning for the nation of Israel, those who all come to faith, who have entered into the kingdom, will stop. By the way, when you and I come back with him and rule and reign with him on this earth, are we going to be sinning during that time? I, don't, I agree. I, we're not going to be. But I also think the scripture shows that Israel won't be either. Listen closely. Go to Isaiah 27. Remember, the 490 years are to make an end to sin for the nation of Israel. Go to Isaiah 27. Look at verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 27. Verse 1 through 9, In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, that fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up altogether or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob, that's Israel, shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has struck them as he struck those who, sorry, has he struck them as those he, try one more time. As he, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? In other words, yes, God was rough with Israel, and he's going to be, but he spared them. Has he spared the other nations? No. Measure by measure, by exile, you will contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Thereby, by, therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. So here we see that God's going to bring an end to sin in Israel. But it gets even more clear. Go to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 27. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, 
and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you, again, Israel, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rule. God's going to do something through all this with the nation of Israel that's going to be so obvious that the rest of the world will bring glory to God. Again, does that happen now? The whole world worshiping God because of Israel? No, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. There's a lot of things that the Bible says in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that God's going to do when the nations come against Israel. And he supernaturally, I believe during the tribulation period, protects them. A lot of prophecy people put the Gog and Magog battle prior to. I don't, and we don't have time to get into that tonight. But I believe it's going to happen from the midpoint of the tribulation on, where God begins to display his power, protect Israel, and the nations will start to realize. But go to Ezekiel 37. Look at verses 21 through 28. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have all they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant, servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Again, the prophecy should be hinting that Israel won't be sinning anymore. Israel will come to faith, and just like we who come back with Jesus won't be sinning, will be ruling on the earth, Israel will be as well. Go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the way, is that the church? It's pretty clear. Because I can see some people taking Israel and trying to make that refer to the church. Because the Bible does say in the New Testament that not all of Israel are of Israel, but all those who are of faith and so on. But here he clarifies it so you don't get confused. I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel and the house of Judah. That's the whole nation, north and south, southern kingdom. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Remember how we've said in Romans eleven twenty five, all Israel is going to be saved. All of Israel that survives the tribulation period are all going to be saved. And they won't need preachers and teachers because everyone's going to know the Lord. And not only are they going to know the Lord, he's going to put in his spirit within them. He's going to write his law in their hearts. And Israel will no longer be sinning. Isn't that an amazing thing? Look at number three. To make, an ato- make atonement for iniquity. During this 490-year period, sin simply can't be ignored. It must be dealt with. That's what all the sacrificial system and the, all the covenants and everything were pointing to. All the sacrifices were pointing to that sin had to be deal with, dealt with. Blood had to be shed in order for the sin to be covered and all. But this was done by Jesus himself in Jerusalem by his death on the cross. You all know 2 Corinthians 5. 17 through 21. Well, actually, I want you to turn there because we all can quote 21, but I want you to see 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new is come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't miss this. Look at verse 18 again. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled himself to us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the ministry. Here's the message. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling who? The world to himself. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just for those who died. Jesus' death on the cross was to cover everyone. Now, that doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. Bibles were clear about that. Narrows the road leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. But God was in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In other words, saying God's already paid for your sin through Jesus Christ, through his sinless life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection. Be reconciled to God. How do you be reconciled to God? You believe in the one that he sent. Believe that Jesus lived what you could not do, was crucified on your behalf, rose from the dead, and by faith say, Lord, if I'm getting to heaven, it's because of Jesus and not because of me. My life is yours. Give me this eternal life. Give me this Holy Spirit. Give me this living water. I believe that Jesus took care of it for me. And when we stop trying to be good enough and trying to earn our salvation and say, Jesus, I'm only going to get it if you give it to me, because I believe you're the only way I can be saved. The Bible says at that moment for us, because all the promises for Israel are ours now. Remember that? All the promises for Israel that they're going to get at the end of the tribulation period are ours now. At that moment, he erases our sins, sprinkles us with clean water, if you will, puts his spirit within us, and he's been moving us to follow his decrees. Now, Jim, I don't fully obey him. You said Israel's going to fully obey him. Remember, listen closely. During the tribulation period, Israel's going to go through this purification process. Remember, the 490 years have to happen fully for all these things to happen. But listen closely. We're coming back with new bodies. 
And I already asked you, when we come back with Jesus in our new bodies, are you and I going to sin? And you said, no, of course not, because we won't be able to anymore. That'll be all dealt with. We don't have this body of sin anymore. Israel, Daniel 12, we'll see later on, Daniel's told in chapter 12, that at the end of this time period, they're going to rise with new bodies. So when Israel comes back to life and it goes into the millennial kingdom, they'll have new bodies as well, saved Israel. So they won't sin just like we won't at that point, because we'll have new bodies. Now, like I said, this is ours now in the time of the Gentiles, but one day it will be applied to national Israel. we got time to do this. We've got five minutes. I think we can do four scriptures in five minutes. Let's do it. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. This is the one I've been trying to, wanting to quote all night, but I know he's going to read it to you later on. Look at Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. God says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. God's going to do something at the end of the tribulation period to the Jews that survived the tribulation who listened to Jesus and ran for their lives and are protected in the wilderness. He's going to pour out his spirit upon them in such a way that their eyes are opened. They realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they're going to weep because they had him put to death. Go to Zechariah 13, though. Look at verse one. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. By the way, this has all been made possible. How? Through Jesus's death on the cross. It was, oh, by the way. That happened during that 490-year period. Go to Isaiah 59. Go to Isaiah 59. Look at verses 20 through 21. Isaiah 59, verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Again, many Old Testament prophecies that God had been telling Israel, there's going to come a day when I do something in your midst and you realize that I'm your Messiah, I'm your Redeemer, and you'll turn to me and you're going to, you're going to mourn, you're going to weep, and I'm going to wash you clean. Israel. He's saving us right now. Why? Does anybody know why? Paul said why. To make Israel jealous. Don't think it's about us, folks. The church age is a wonderful thing, and we've been grafted in, but don't think for a second, in Romans 11, the Bible, Paul says, don't think for a second that you're better than them. We haven't replaced Israel. He's not done with Israel. He's using us to make Israel jealous, and we should thank him every day that he's allowed us to be a part of what he's doing for his glory. But it's about Israel. And folks, with the chaos that's erupting and all the things that are happening, and I don't think what's happening in Afghanistan is any accident with what all's going on in the prophecies and the end time things. I think an, uh, an unstable Afghanistan and terrorist work that's going to maybe increase through that is going to make things a little bit tougher for Israel. Would you not agree? Not only America, but also Israel. Oh, but it's okay. The Bible says all that stuff's going to happen. There's a lot to still go on between now and then. But let's look at uh, Isaiah, 
uh, sorry, Ezekiel, one last one, Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29. This is one of the verses that is part of why I believe that the Gog and Magog battle will happen probably from the midpoint of the tribulation, culminating at the battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29. Ezekiel 39, verse 25, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I'll be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery they have practiced against me, when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, then assembled them into their own land. I'll leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And if you do a study of the Gog and Magog battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you're going to see that when God does the battle of Gog and Magog and defeats the enemies miraculously himself, that Israel will turn to the Lord from that day forth forevermore. Well, that can't happen prior to the tribulation period if Israel is going to sign a covenant with Antichrist. I believe that the battle of Gog and Magog is going to happen starting around the midpoint of the tribulation, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. If you put it all together, you'll see that. But listen closely to what the scripture says. At the end of that time period, national Israel will finish the transgression. They'll no longer reject the Messiah. There's going to be an end to sin in Israel. And as you already saw here, the atonement for iniquity has been accomplished by Jesus already, but will be applied to national Israel at the end of the tribulation period. A lot more to look at. We'll deal with that next week. I hope you made it through tonight. Thanks for coming.